0: Well, we use a metaphor around this church that, um, that looks like this, and it's trying to describe what it, what it feels like, like sort of a picture of what it's like to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be carried along by the Holy Spirit. Life in Jesus Christ should not make sense to people around you who are not strapped into the wind. They should look at a life that's possessed by the Holy Spirit and marvel in disbelief. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily envy you or look up to you, but it certainly ought to cause curiosity, that the way that a Christian lives, carried along by the Spirit, should cause curiosity, should cause a double take to those not possessed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God controls us, but not in a marionette kind of way. It's not that the Holy Spirit just kind of grabs us and and pulls us in these very specific marionette ways. Rather, He indwells us and empowers us and forms Christ in us a little bit more each day. The church, then, is like a sailboat. We just sang a song that the king of my heart would be the wind in our sails. What What a fitting picture. And saints gathered together are not just individuals who are sharing space, but they are a crew. They depend on one another. They learn to work together. They share victories. They share storms together. But most importantly for us as Christians in a local church to keep in mind is this. We are on a mission we are left here sailing earth's waters on a search and rescue mission. It's not just a mission, it is the mission. It is the great mission that God has left us here for. Now, Neighborhood Bible Church has a part to play in this city. We aren't the only church. Gathered churches are a part of other gathered churches, and together we make a The capital C church, the body of Christ. But our little neighborhood church has a part to play in this city. We call it our heading. It's the place that God has directed our church to go and pointed us. And we are on the move and seeking to stay the course. If you are near here, if if you are new here, And you're wondering, why do we not do certain things? Why do we do certain other things? Well, it probably has to do with our heading. It probably has to do with the sailboat that you found yourself in and the crew of Christians that you have connected to. Let me put up these really quick, go full screen with this. Simple family and gifts gives us a really clear, simple picture of what these are about. What simple means is this. There are a trivial many things in life, And there are are an essential, vital few. Simple means that we will stay aligned around these essentials. We will keep coming back to the essentials. What are two of our vital programs? Sunday morning gathering for worship and midweek gathering in community groups. Those are essential to us as Christians. The word family, it has a double ring to it. You see, we're both spiritual and earthly family. So We will live out the reality that the church is a spiritual family. This informs how we function together, how we spend our money, how we think. But it also is to celebrate and safeguard and fiercely support earthly families. Birth children, stepchildren, adopted and foster children are all celebrated and supported here. And the last word is gifts. What does gifts mean? Well, on your spiritual birthday, you receive some spiritual gifts. And we are not functioning as a church, as a body, without every member fulfilling its God-given purpose and design. Think about your physical body. You can't do without every member working together. You are less healthy, you are less energetic, you are less effective. You travel far less distance if your whole body isn't working together. Ephesians 2 says that each believer is God's workmanship. Literally, it's his poem or his tapestry or his masterpiece. We are committed as a church to living as if Ephesians 2 is actually true. I love this quote by Mark Batterson. It says this You are
1: unlike any yourself. All right, don't mess with your mute button. Uh, just lost. But we'll thumbs up that we appear to have a signal. We do. Let me start this quote. Unique.
0: You owe it to yourself to be. Is on our heading. So. In front of us regularly we talk about this all the
1: time us as a church
0: calling us into a life of service for an eternal kingdom and a brand new family that he is bringing together at this church we encourage any and all kind of note being at Hear God's word better in your robe, you get to wear a robe without any shame whatsoever. If you function better walking around, moving, do that. If you by drawing pictures, we've even been known in this church to hand out play-doh and sculpt what God might be saying to you. So whatever's gonna keep you engaged, whatever's gonna help you remember what you need to remember or do out of this morning, out of the text, feel free to engage in that. Here's kind of an opening prompt. These are in your questions this week, but I thought I'd put it out there right away because it touches on our passage. Yes or no? Worldwide pandemic and widespread has changed how I'm living. Yes or no? And then explain. Do you feel changed or challenged or even thinking differently about where is my life headed? because of this worldwide pandemic and massive un country. You know, Luke is one of four gospel writers, four accounts looking at the life of Jesus. And remember, writing something down is not a small deal in the ancient Near East. It's a costly venture. And so he addresses this to Theophilus. Some think Theophilus might have been a benefactor who's paying for this project. It's a lot of work and a lot of money to write this down. But Luke wants to write this down because some things have been accomplished amongst us, he says, that need to be written down. And what we see from Luke's gospel is this. He stresses Jesus' care for the outsider, specifically poor people and women who were outsiders and children who were less than and sinners, whether that be tax collectors like we saw last week with Zacchaeus or others, and certainly Samaritans and those who were racially uh, outsiders. When you look at this title, what we see from our title that we've been working with is it's sort of like a box top to a puzzle. You're putting a puzzle together, and when you just f- see a few pieces at a time, you can't see the big picture. But going back to the box top, you see where is this whole thing going. Luke's profession
1: is the lens of profession. He's a physician by trade. Uh, and so more than just
0: biography though kind of his life Luke is explicitly saying that Jesus is God and he points to two things that we see woven through this gospel and his un uh, his unequaled works his unmatched unequaled works he was
1: and did things unlike first God in a body who is good. This is an advanced. Okay, there it goes. Luke 18 said to him, Why do you call me? the good? Don't call me that. He doesn't say that. I being good. They're making this statement. Only standard of righteousness has been on display in person.
0: Listen to this series in Luke as we've seen Jesus. The goodness of God is on display in just that he exhibits God-like goodness; it's that he embodies goodness. There's a difference, isn't there? Exhibit goodness, but any of you who know me, and even by the end of this little live stream, you will get a sense he doesn't embody goodness, though. And Jesus is quite the opposite. He doesn't just exhibit God-like goodness; he embodies. Says you can see the word God built into the word good. Go full screen one more time. Once you see that, you can't. If you don't have eyes to see it, you might read the Good Doctor and not notice it at all. Are we
1: still not getting audio? Okay, crank up your volume. More accomplishments.
0: His mission. Uh, Last week, Ben looked at this. At the end of of, uh, Dining with Zacchaeus, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Probably the most succinct purpose statement of the life of Jesus that we see. When we think about the life of Jesus, um, Jesus didn't come to earth primarily as a teacher or primarily as a healer or leader or servant, although he does all of these things. You know what? Jesus came to earth to be a Savior, the Savior of the world. The Savior of people. That was his mission. His mission was a search and rescue of sinners. This last part of it, the tagline is Luke is probably the most accessible of all the the Gospels. Remember that famous Gentile Goldilocks from a childhood story? Goldilocks would probably say this Man, I read Matthew, but it's too Jewish. I read Mark, it's too dark. There's so much suffering in Mark. I read John, and it's too theological and heady. There's so many words in John. But I read Luke, and it was just right. Luke speaks to an outsider. Unless you're Jewish this morning, you're a Gentile. That means non-Jewish. And to have a crossover hit in some kind of a music setting, that person needs to be fluent in two different genres, right? The original one and then the crossover genre. And Luke is exactly that. He's an outsider. He's a Gentile. He's not an eyewitness of Jesus. And yet he's an insider because he's new in Christ. He's a Christian Gentile. And so it speaks to outsiders. Turning your Bibles right now to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in the middle parts of Luke 19. We'll start in verse 11 in just a second. Just a reminder, Jesus had just demonstrated what he means by I'm here to seek and save the lost. He does so by... by, uh, by Interacting with this guy Zacchaeus. Remember that Zacchaeus was not just a wee little man. He was um, he was actually the guy who you know would like sell his grandma for the right price. He was a sneak. He was a thief. He was not popular because he didn't do right by people. And Jesus comes and, and dines with him. He befriends him, and a change comes over Zacchaeus. And what Zacchaeus does. Is fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, his outside changed because his inside had been changed. And it says this then in verse 11. It says, and they heard these things, uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, first reason, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So the context of who this next story is directed to are the very people who just witnessed Jesus dining with an outsider. And remember, they were put off by that. Stories are prompted because of a reason. If your kids are doing something and you go, oh, that reminds me of something, and you tell them something, it may just tie into what's going on or it may be a lesson. Jesus' story here, this parable, is prompted by... One is because time is short, and the second is because expectations of the kingdom are off. Time is short, and expectations are off, so Jesus tells a story. What's in Jerusalem? It says he's saying this because he's near Jerusalem. Well, what's in Jerusalem is the torture, trial, murder, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. This is what he's been predicting all along. That's what they're approaching. And those with him, hearing all of this, are ready to receive the kingdom and skip the cross. Isn't that true of all of us? Wouldn't we all rather skip the cross and just get right to the crown? But this is not how it works. Jesus is teaching us kingdom order. There's an order to things. The cross is before the crown. Before resurrection, what has to happen? The seed must die, right? The seed must be planted in the ground before the harvest comes. Before resurrection, the person must die. Before being born again into the new life, the old man must be put to death. And so the story comes. And it's really a story within a story. It's a story with two plots. As I read these verses, I want you to watch for sort of three character groups. One is the nobleman. The nobleman in this this story is Jesus. Secondly, he's going to talk about servants. Servants are followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus. And finally, he's going to talk about citizens. Citizens are the lost sinners that Jesus came to seek out and rescue. So it says this, he said, therefore, here's the story, a nobleman went into a far off country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. And he said, engage in business until I come. But his citizens, different from his servants, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Pause. So Jesus was about to depart. What do we call that? Looking back on that, we call that the death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension, of Jesus Christ. Jesus soon will be giving his disciples the charge to do his work in the same manner that he did it until I return, he says. We call this the great commission. Right? It's found at the end of Matthew. He sends them out as witnesses. He sends them out to engage in kingdom business always with a mindset until I return. I'm coming back. And then average people are citizens. Notice that this isn't like fringe anarchists who say, we don't want to have this man reign over us. These are just everyday, average, normal people. They're the citizens. And what do they do? They reject and they rebel against Jesus. They hate him, it says. Now verse 15, which if you're in your Bible, think about verse 15 as a fast forward in the story. It's looking on ahead into the future, fast, fast forwarding in time to the return of Jesus Christ. Okay? His first advent is called Christmas. His second advent has yet to happen. Verse 15, when he, the nobleman, Jesus, returned... Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you, have, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second one came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. He said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, everyone who has, to everyone who has more will be given, but the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So now he's turning his attention from servants to the citizens. In verse 27, he says this. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So two plot lines. The return of Christ will mean very, very different things for two different groups of people. Servants and citizens. Those who are disciples of Jesus and those who are not Let me pick up plot number one. Plot number one has to do with Jesus returning and settling accounts with his servants. According to 1 Peter 4, judgment begins in the house of God. Now, this isn't a judgment of salvation as to whether they're in or not. They're servants of Jesus Christ. They're in. This is rather what they did with what they were entrusted. They were given money to engage in business until he comes back. And now it's a settling of accounts with what they did with that. Now, if you're like me, you read this and go, what on earth is a mina? Well, a mina is worth basically like three months wages. That's roughly about what that money is. But in the parable... a minor represents uh, this, this this single token. And we'll get to that in a second. Some of you may be remembering a different parable. I think it's Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the talents. You, rem- you may remember in the parable of the talents, um, people are given different amounts. Some are given a lot, some are given a little. They get different amounts representing different gifts and abilities. Now contrast the parable of the talents with the parable of the minas. In the parable of the minas, each of the 10 servants gets exactly the same coin. It represents the one life we have been given. We have been, giving, have been given this one token, this one life to live, to go and engage in business. Now, if you think of a mina as sort of a life coin this morning, um, it'll, it'll kind of call to mind, uh, think Mario Brothers for a second, and it might be called a, like a, a mina mushroom. Right? And you don't get to have more. You don't jump up and get more of these. You're given one, and that's it. And then you ha- are, are going to have a count. So what I want you to do is this. Think about what is it that you steward that is exactly the same as everyone else around you. Gifts and abilities, experience, those things differ, right? But there are some things that we're all given exactly the same. We're given one life to live. That's one. How about this? We're given 24 hours in a day. No more and no less. If you have moved from being a citizen to a servant because Jesus searched you out and rescued you, then catch this. You all possess, we all possess the same gospel that we're working with. We all have the same medicine to be offering. We all have the same medicine to be taking. How about this? If you're a servant of Jesus Christ, we all share in the same spirit. Isn't it powerful to think you have no more or less access to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life than Dr. Luke, who wrote much of the New Testament, than Paul, than anyone that you might think of as a hero of the faith. We all have the same spirit. Here's what stories do, and certainly Jesus' story does this. It invites us in, and it asks of us, What have we done? What would we be able to say? What have we done with our mina mushroom? What have we done with our life coin? God has given us a gift. How did we engage in business until he returns? Friends, it starts with knowing what is the Father's business. Jesus came to show us the heart and character and priorities of God. And Jesus says it succinctly. I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to serve and not to be served. I came to lay down my life as a ransom for many. To engage in the business of the nobleman, of Jesus as he returns, is to look at his life and to do likewise. Notice that ten servants were given the mina, and we only get reports back from three of them, three of the ten. What's being inspected? Well, you business people would say, that's called ROI, return on investment. They were all given equal amounts. How did they handle it? And so the ROI is being inspected and rewarded. Of course, two of them are rewarded because they took their one mina and they got both one got a thousand percent return on investment, another 500% return on investment. Now we don't know about the other seven, of course. But these two are highlighted as being rewarded for that. Do you see what the reward is, by the way? Note that the reward from God is not doing nothing. Reward from God is not playing the harp on a cloud. Reward from God is not endless golf. Reward from God is reigning and ruling with God. Think about this for a second reward from God is more responsibility. It's God-given work, which is a blessing. And that's the reward. The third servant comes along with excuses rather than profit. Now he chooses a really curious way to defend himself. You've probably found yourself in the same way. I know I'll offend my boss. I'll put it back on that person, and that will be my great defense. This is called blame-shifting, and this goes on all the time. And he doesn't even live out his own stated theology, his own actual thoughts. His words condemn him, as Jesus points out. Here's the point. Our theology, what we think of the nobleman, what we think of Jesus, informs our actions. Our theology informs our actions. We can't help it. The ones who confidently engage risk their coin, so to speak... On profit, and they're praised. The one who lives with a mindset of scarcity, with a mindset of fear, with a cowering picture of the nobleman, who in this person's mind is a, a hard, harsh master, who evidently uh, does business and, and does things where he didn't do the work of it. That person who lives in fear and scarcity, he's clinging and hiding what he has in fear of loss. And in fear of punishment. That's the one who suffers loss of reward. Doesn't that sound like a lot of people you know? Maybe that sounds a lot like you. That's the cold drudgery. The yoke of religion. That Jesus came to smash. You are not being invited into a life. Of scarcity and fear and cowering and punishment. Jesus invites us into a life altogether different. To be a Christian is to be a servant of our master Jesus. You are now a new person on a new assignment. The person who fails to see this is the person clinging to their coin for fear of loss. How sad to see that coin sort of gradually drift and kind of shrink and kind of, and kind of go away in their eyes. You know, many, view people, uh, many people view the Christian faith as sort of this cruise ship to heaven. Uh, they, they think in their minds that they have their ticket and they're safely on board. This might have been their decision to follow Christ. They think of their pastor of their church as the cruise director. Hi, I'm Dave and I'm your cruise director. That's what some people think of me. Um, and so if anything is not to their liking, they'll take it up with their pastor. And then the church staff, of course, would be the crew of the cruise ship. And it's their job to serve up and clean up uh, after their spiritual meals, um, according, of course, to their taste and to their temperature of each one's liking. Uh, They provide the right kind of music at just the right volume. And, of course, programs that keep the journey from getting boring. That's the mindset of Christian faith as cruise ship to heaven, biding our time, waiting for the return of Jesus. In actuality, Jesus is painting a different picture. He's shattering the expectations of his followers who have completely wrong mindsets of what this kingdom of God is all about that Jesus has been preaching. In actuality, we are on a search and rescue boat. Time is of the essence because the horrors of hell are real and people are dying every day. Who's our captain? Our captain is Jesus. We are all the crew members serving under his command. Each one of us has a vital role to fill for the sake of others who are not in our boat. Church, let me warn this. We've warned this since day one of opening this church about 13 years ago. We will all be prone to turn our chairs inward and to be self-serving as a church. Why? Because there's always more needs to be met within us. But if we keep this picture in mind that we are a search for and rescue boat. It means that we will do our part in his command, in his power, with urgency. Because there are people outside of our boat who need our love and energy and attention. And when they come aboard, they'll be sopping wet. They will bump into us. They will not act like crew members. And we will say praise God and hallelujah. Another one's been yanked out of the sea and is safe for eternity. Miles Monroe said this, The great tragedy in life is not death, but life without reason. Life without reason. I love this from David. This is found in Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep, and was laid with his fathers. After David had served his purpose in his generation, served God's purpose in his generation. What a great summary statement. I would love something like that, just to be said of me, that I could look back at my life and say, I've finished the race, but I've, I've served the purpose God gave me in my generation. And then fall asleep, of course, as a comforting way to say that he died. Take a look at this title slide one more time. Let me go back to it. Christian, you've been given a sacred trust to steward, your very self. You have one life to live. That coin in the center, it represents the one coin. Everyone gets the exact same thing. One life to call their own. Jesus showed us how to live and what's important. And he showed us how uh, he was never going to leave us or forsake us. I love this song, Live It Well by Switchfoot. I just heard this, I think, yesterday. And I thought, man, that's so fitting. The chorus says this, Life is short, I want to live it well. One one life, one story to tell. Life is short, I want to live it well. And you're the one I'm living for. Awaken, oh my soul. Every breath that you take is a miracle. Life is short, I want to live it well. In abandoning your life to Jesus investing all that you are in his business, you don't end up with nothing. You end up with everything. Conversely, in not doing that, in keeping and not having God reign over you, you end up not with the one thing you are clinging to. You end up with nothing. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. What's the life ring around that coin? It's that we're not called to preserve our life ourselves. Instead, we're on a search and rescue mission. God has left us here to follow in his footsteps, to engage in his business, to seek and to save the lost. You will be my witnesses, he says. Now the other plot line. Plot line number two that Jesus is telling. The king now turns his attention to the citizens in verse 14. And in verse verse 27, the summary, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. He calls those not his disciples, his enemies. Friends, here's a really startling truth that the Bible says over and over and over again. People are sheep or goats. They are weeds or wheat. The Bible lumps everyone into those being alive or those dead and damned. People are not spiritually neutral beings. Let me say that again. No one you ever lay eyes on is a spiritually neutral being. No one is spiritual sw- Switzerland, right? Everyone has picked aside. And people are either healing and helping because of the life of God in them, or they are cancerous and infectious, destroying their own life with sin and self-rule, and others due to sin in their life. Now Jesus reaches for graphic, violent imagery, I think to teach us about the horrors of life without him. Here's what you are choosing by not submitting to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And he paints this awful, bloody picture. Note that what we see here is to continue in your rebellion and hatred of Christ is to end up suffering for eternity. And notice also, it's the choice of the citizens who, quote, did not want me to reign over them. C.S. Lewis gives this explanation that in the end, everyone gets what they want. If you want Christ, you get Christ. If you don't want Christ, you don't get Christ. And that's how it goes. This not only fits with the whole of Scripture, that God pursues us patiently and man repeatedly rejects, but it also fits with our own life experience. Look at your own life. We are born rebels, and we resist the reign and rule of anyone or anything. We're seeing that played out in some pretty vivid ways right now around our country. I want to wrap up my time with this. Let's take a look at what it means to be about the master's business. A couple of thoughts on that. I can't stress enough how important this has been in my life that a part of, of uh, in fact, the starting point, not a part, the starting point is beginning with resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God has been slain for sin. The effect of sin is over and done. That means total forgiveness erases our shame, and total cleansing erases our filth. I can't look at you, but you can look at me. Look at me for a minute. Make this part of your daily life. Work of engaging in the master's business, of sitting with this truth, of returning to this truth, of letting this truth wash you afresh each and every day. I can't tell you how it will change your life if you begin your day with great thoughts about God, it will change your life. Begin your day with great thoughts about God, begin your day with coming and re resting in the finished work. It is finished. This is probably the most important work of being engaged in the Father's business. Because we are so tempted to skip this part and do the rest without it. So make it part of your daily work of Christ to setting your mind back on this truth. Hebrews 4.9. Jot this down or someone put it in the live uh, chat. Hebrews 4.9 is a curious passage. It even talks about the rest that we have in God. Listen to this wording. And to strive to enter that rest. Okay? So from this starting point, that it is finished, right? That grace has paid the price. From that starting point, we are resting secure in the finished work of Christ. And we take a flying leap of faith into action. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's a place from security and knowledge that we leap into action. Why is that? Because God doesn't rescue us into retirement. He doesn't rescue us into some holding cell, cruise ship, that we're just waiting for the return. He rescues us into action. He rescues us into the good work. And the Bible could not be more clear. You are going to have to strive at the good work God has given you. Remember what's what the reward of living a life well lived is. It's more responsibility. It's God ordained, God given, God blessed, God fueled work. James says it this way: that faith without works is dead. So a religion that says the right thing but does no thing, that's dead. In Isaiah fifty eight, the people listen to this were delighted to know God. They were delighted to know God's ways and seek his face. Don't you want to applaud that? You go, yes, that's so great. And yet, they're wondering in Isaiah 58 why God doesn't come near. And God comes near and exposes their hypocrisy. He exposes that their religion is self-serving nonsense. And you know what he tells them? Knock it off. Stop pretending to delight in my ways and to seek my face. Then he goes on to give a vision for the good work they are to strive after. Isaiah 58, verse 6 says this To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Verse 7 To share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from his flesh. Verse 10, listen to this. To pour yourself out. Do you hear that giving of the coin? Invest your coin. Pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted church. Sit with Isaiah 58 pour yourself out in love for those in need if that isn't simple enough for us listen to the words of Jesus in 1 John three sixteen. he says by this we know that, that he has laid down his life for us that's resting in the finished work and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers that's striving at the good work we rest that he's laid down his life for us and that's so that we laid out our lives for the brothers. It goes on to say, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, do not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So I ask you, church, I ask myself, it's been an uncomfortable week, how am I investing my life? What is my a mushroom going to say? What is my coin going to produce? Let me give you two things that are wildly popular right now. Wildly on the minds and lips of people. Number one is this. Steward the color of skin that you had no say in receiving. Would you do something for a minute? Take a look at your skin right now. Take a look at your skin and thank God for the gift of the color of your skin. And then right on the heels of thanking God for it, commit to using the color of your skin in sacrificial love for other people. What would our city be like if the servants of Jesus Christ were to take their race, their ethnic makeup, and say, Lord, I devote this to invest in kingdom living? I devote this to engage in kingdom business until you come. I celebrate that you've gifted me this, and that you're sovereign, and that you do things on purpose. Secondly, steward the gender that God has made you. There is much confusion and much division over this, particularly in this secular holiday month that we're in right now. Men and women, listen to me, use your God-designed and God-decided sexuality... For his glory and for your good. What would it look like if we took just those two things, our skin color and our gender, and used it each day and said, God, we want to engage in kingdom business. Of course, that bleeds out into all kinds of things. Jonathan read a passage from Proverbs about using the things that come through our hand. We just read a passage about our homes, the food that comes through our hands, the clothes that come through our hands, the stuff of this life. To engage every day in the good work that God has seen. Let me tell you this. I see this going on. It's so encouraging to be your pastor. I see flashes of this all the time. But there is more, church. There's more to grow in in this. Every one of us lives out our theology. It seeps out of us whether we want it to or not. What do the choices, the joys, the hurts from this last week say about the God that you believe in? You know, the parting words of Jesus to his followers as he sends them off on this seek and rescue mission is that you are not alone and that you are not doing this in your own strength. Listen to Acts 1.8. He says, wait here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit Has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wait until this little thing you clip in called a sail is going to come and fill you, and then hold on tight. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us a to do list each morning. We don't wake up on our nightstand and just see this little check off. That's a marionette view of God. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit gives us guardrails. The Holy Spirit gives us direction. The Holy Spirit gives us nudges. And most important, the, the Holy Spirit gives us himself, his very presence. I was speaking with Miguel this week. He came to pick up his beef jerky, and, um, and we were talking a little bit. He was at Home Depot, and he was at Home Depot doing some home project, but really he's a Christian on Jesus' time all the time. He's never off duty. And so he gets a sense about this employee walking by and it confirms, like, yeah, I really should talk to that person. And when the person came back, he sat there and engaged this guy about being born again into the light, into a life of faith with Jesus Christ. So fun to hear that, Miguel. I had a guy come and work on my garage door; it's broken, and so he comes into my house, uh, and I'm getting it fixed. And, and yeah, I'm there with a the guy fixing my garage, but I'm on Jesus' time. I'm never off duty. And the Spirit nudges me to, to talk to him. And so I'm praying. I'm always praying, God, if there's open doors, um, let, me, let me do this. And so there was both a metaphorical, spiritual open door and a physical open door. Because he got it working, which was great. But talk about a captive audience. My door is shut and stuck shut. And I'm inside the garage talking to him. And the conversation turned to Jesus. And it was a, it was a really awesome opportunity. These are all around us all the time. Christian, can you have the freedom to engage and speak up if that's what the Spirit's telling you? And also have the, have the freedom to let people pass and not speak up every time, just like out of rote repetition. This is life in the Spirit. Some people worry about the church always asking for money. You, you may have wished to have, to have attended our church a few years ago. If you were in attendance that day, um, there was a sum of cash that was taped under your chair. When you showed up to church and there were differing amounts in the different envelopes that were under there. Now, once you heard the sermon on why that money was given to you, maybe you wish that you weren't at church that morning because you see the money was given as a trust and as a responsibility This was the flyer that accompanied this thing. We called it talent show. And it was on the parable of the talents. And what we had here was this. No one was going to audit you except your own conscience and the eyes of God. But some of the rules were this. You weren't allowed to simply give cash away or just put it back in the offering. We wanted to make it more challenging than that. We wanted this to be a representation of the gifts that were called to steward. You were encouraged to obey the Holy Spirit's leading in this. This was a small experiment to highlight a big reality. Christian, don't just come to church, put your money in the offering. Let the pastors think about what the scriptures mean. Let the pastors and elders figure out where to spend the money and how to invest and steer the church. We are each called to be engaged in the business of God. We come together and we join forces. In fact, one of the encouragements was, hey, grab your community group and pool your your money together and do something even bigger than one of you can do alone. The band's going to come on up in just a second and sing a song, Remedy, which fits so well with the Good Doctor theme, doesn't it? To seek and to save the lost. I want you to listen to this song as it describes our condition of being wounded healers. Notice that we don't scrub in so we can get to work. No, it's God that scrubs us clean and then invites us to work. We don't know the tools to use. We wait around and God says, scalpel, and we go, okay, here. And we put it in the hands in immediate trust and obedience. A couple of weeks into shelter in place, I brought our team together and I said, listen, whatever... Goals we had set up, let's scrap all those, let's take a new 60-day goals, and let's strive where we shelter. God has shut the doors of our church. God has closed our programs, and there are new fields of harvest that were hidden to us before, but are now open. And I love the staff. the staff went to work, we all went to work, seeking God. What's the business you want us involved in? But I want to highlight our Spanish team. Those who head up our Spanish ministry really nailed it. And I actually asked uh, Sandra and Anhel to put together a little video to kind of um, bring our English speakers, part of our church family, up to speed on some of the things going on in our Spanish ministry. I want you to watch this. I want you to see sort of what it looks like to pivot off of a worldwide pandemic. What it looks like to pivot off of shut doors and to say, God, what else do you have for us then? Take a look at this
2: video. Hello, my brothers and sisters. I don't know if you remember us. Uh, I am Pastor Angel. She's my wife, Sandra. Uh, We are from the Spanish service, and dear service in our church, Neighborhood Bible Church. We really want to talk with you about the big experience that we have in this hard time. Uh, The first one, I lost 20 pounds, but we have more important things to tell you. Not being able to be at the church give us the opportunity to open a channel through YouTube. The surprise has been that so many families, friends, and people that we don't even know has been joining us in there. So they chat with us every Sunday from Peru, from Colombia, from Mexico, from Guatemala, Spain, so many countries that really has been a pleasure to hear that other people has been receiving this. Also, during this time, so we had the opportunity to open new groups. Uh, We opened the youth adults groups and we opened a leadership group. uh, So we didn't have before. And other thing that has been amazing is that the people, more people, has been joining us through the small groups, through Zoom. So now we have more families coming to the church in that way. So even though we are not on the building, and even though we are happy that we will be there very soon, so we know that God has been having a purpose with everything that has been happening during this pandemic. On the third service, we created a slogan that says, Be connected. We are the church. And let me tell you what says Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Thank you, God. Thank you, church. Because you and I, first service, second service, third service, we are the
1: church.